You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Good evening, everyone. It's really good to see you all out in this very uh, rough, wild evening, um, when you could probably be sitting at home all wrapped up. But thank you for your zeal and your resolution to be here. We're going to talk about somebody else who was resolute tonight and uh, who set his face to go to Jerusalem resolutely. Also, while there's a storm brewing outside, there's also, there are also big storms brewing in our world. This was the week when um, the whole Middle East crisis went to a knife edge, and it's still there, and we don't know which way it will go, but we can rest assured that there is one who knows which way it will go, and that we have access to him, and we can pray about that. And please do pray about the situation in the Middle East. Pray for those people of power who have apparently the power to do many things, either good or bad, in that situation. But um, we find ourselves in Palm Sunday, as has already been intimated by Beck there as she was doing the announcements. This is the Sunday which the church all around the world um, holds as the Sunday, or just before, seven days before Jesus was crucified, a climax in Jesus' journey before he went right down into the valley and then came up again on the Sunday to another climax from which he has never descended um, again. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, um, we could very easily set out resolutely for many things, especially if we really enjoy them. We could resolutely set out for school. I rarely did that, Um, uh, only because I was forced. Um, Some of you love to go to school. You go resolutely every day, and that's lovely. That's wonderful. Um, Some of you resolutely go to your sports. Some of you resolutely, all of you actually tonight, resolutely came to church, and that's wonderful. But Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and that's spectacular because... He knew exactly what he was going into. It wasn't like he was um, under some kind of an illusion that these people waving uh, cloaks and palm trees in front of him um, were the whole picture. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to. And we can see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, uh, where it says, Jesus said to his disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. See, in the whole area of the supernatural, Jesus was operating in it, and he knew what lay ahead. And so did someone called Isaiah hundreds of years before, when he said in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5, The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. To set our faces like flint to do a certain thing is the same thing as to do it resolutely. To do it full of determination and head straight towards it. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him, and it's all the more amazing that he still continued on that journey. He didn't waver. He didn't look for a diversion in the road. Um something that said, take this way instead. He might have been tempted to do that, but he didn't do it. He did say in the garden, didn't he? Lord, Father, not 
my will, but yours be done. So let's read the story of the triumphal entry. I'm sure all of us have heard uh, this story being named and have read it. It occurs in several of the Gospels. And here we're going to read the Matthew one. Matthew chapter 21. Please follow along in your Bible, whether it's electronic or paper, and uh, see what you notice. I want you to look out in particular for any hints of quotes from the Old Testament. I'll give you the heads up that there are at least five quotes from the Old Testament from four different books and five different chapters. So see if you can see them. Your version may give you a clue. Uh, others may not. So here we go. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts. If you were here um, just a couple of Wednesdays ago, you would have heard Tom Kimber uh, say these things. This was 4.12. I want to recommend 4.12, by the way, just in passing. It's a wonderful opportunity to deepen uh, in your knowledge of the Word of God and the things that surround the Christian faith. He said these things about the Scripture. He said, when I come to a passage of Scripture, I ask myself a series of questions. And the first one is this. What is this passage teaching me about Jesus? And the second one is this. What is this passage teaching me about the kingdom of God? Now, if there ever, if there ever was a passage of Scripture about which we could ask these two, these two questions, it's certainly this one, the triumphal entry of Jesus, the Christ, into Jerusalem. It teaches us a lot about Jesus, more than we could ever uh, deal with tonight. It teaches us a lot about the kingdom of heaven as well, more than we could ever delve into tonight. 
But let's just ask the questions anyway. And we'll give one answer for each. What does this passage teach us about Jesus? Well, the resounding answer is Jesus Christ is King. Amen. Say after me. Jesus Christ is King. That's true. Amen. The whole book of Matthew is devoted to the topic of Jesus Christ being King. And it starts off in the very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And it says there, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're ever talking to Muslim people or people from the Middle East, genealogies are very, very important. You need to know your roots and where you came from. And uh, if you want to find out who a person is, you don't just find out about the individual. You find out about his family and generations back and where he came from. And so Matthew starts out with the very first verse saying, this whole book really is a record of the genealogy of, the, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, who came first, Abraham or David, in time? It was Abraham. Now, you should really, because he's the older and the, 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 the patriarch of the whole family, he should have come first, really. But in Matthew's reasoning, he put David first because the subject is about royalty, not about the patriarch Abraham. So right from the very beginning, Matthew signals this book is about the king. And for the Jewish year, when they read that book, Matthew was particularly written for Jews. When they would read the, the gospel of Matthew, they would immediately pick up on the royalty thing. The son of David. This is about kingship, the kingship of Israel and the heir to their throne. And this is what they were really looking for, the Jewish people. They were under the Roman occupation, you may know, and uh, they had no, not got their own real king. They had Herod, but he was just like a little pawn that was put over there by the Romans uh, to rule in a sense, but they were the real rulers, the Romans were. And um, so from the very first verse, of Matthew right to the very last verses, the subject is about the king. And in the last verse of Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, actually last three verses, the claims about Jesus expand out to this. Listen to this. Jesus said this about himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus was not just saying, I'm king of Israel, or will be. Actually, he said he was the king of the Jews. Um, he was saying he was the king of the entire cosmos. Now, this contrasts with New Age thinking. You've all heard of the New Age, have you? The New Age movement, which is uh, just an eclectic group of people who believe lots of different things along the lines of the universe being uh, an entity. Uh, in other words, it's got a mind and it's got a personality. It is a thing that lives almost. But the universe is not a, an entity. It is a created thing, made up of many things. It isn't a God. It was actually a creation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is able to say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's amazing, isn't it, that this little baby who was born away at the beginning of Matthew, um, as the story went on, more and more was revealed about him. He was to be the king of the Jews. And then he says, I am king of all things. He didn't say it in those words, but 
um, the meaning of these verses that we just read is that he is the king of all things. And all through the book, the truth of Jesus as king is built upon and expanded by the imagery and language of the Jewish kings. So we come up to the triumphal entry. That is one of the climaxes of this whole idea. And we're celebrating it today. What we have is a king entering his capital city. That's the picture. And that's what we're looking at. So if we look at uh, Matthew, we can see many mentions of kings like Herod. And then there were the Magi. They're sometimes called the three kings. They brought royal gifts to Jesus at his birth. Gifts that were fit for a prince. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, of course, there was this message above his head when he was on the, on the cross. What did it say? It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was meant to be a bit of a jest, really, or an insult to the Jews. But actually, it was the truth. And indeed, the whole title uh, of Christ itself, Christ is a Greek word. Um, maybe you know the name Christopher. Um, Christopher uh, actually means Christ bearer. And uh, so someone with the name of Christopher is actually um, taking their name from that idea of bearing Christ. It's a beautiful name. But then Christ actually is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah, mean, Messiah means anointed one, someone who has been anointed with oil and proclaimed to be the next king. And that title of Jesus appears 17 times in the Gospel of Matthew. So over and over again, the Jewish reader would see that title and they would think, future king, future king, all the time. And so we can see that Matthew is all about Jesus the king. And here we are at the end of Palm Sunday, and we have been thinking about Jesus the king today in the morning. Maybe this is the first time you've given thought to him as king today, but We'll continue that thought. And in the portion of Scripture that we read, I said already, there are five Old Testament references. Did you pick them out? Did you see them? Did your Bible let you know they were there? Yes. And uh, I would like to look at a couple of them. One is Psalm 8, where it begins and ends with the same word. It's like a parenthesis. The first verse says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the last verse says the same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So have a look at your translation and see, um, is there any difference there between the word, first word Lord and the second word Lord? Can anybody see a difference? Maybe someone who notes can tell me what they see. What's the first Lord look like? Capitals, that's it. It's in big capital letters. And the second one has only one capital letter. That is because in the Hebrew, there are two entirely different words. We were singing tonight this first word, the first word for Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. We sang that. Do you know what that means? That's God's uh, name that he calls himself. When he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am. And that is Yahweh, the one who always is. That's his name. So the psalm really reads like this. O Yahweh, our master, our king, there is nowhere in earth where you are not sovereign. Now, this is the psalm that Jesus referenced as he came into Jerusalem. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 2, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. This is a wonderful verse that has come to me over the last three weeks. And out of it, I've seen the importance of children's praise and children being present in church. Sometimes in, in this age, children are shipped away to another room early on, right at the very beginning, and they miss out on the corporate worship. We don't believe in that. We believe they should be all in together, learning to worship from us and we learning from them what we miss by not having children in the service, what they miss too. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And when Jesus was mentioning this psalm, he was actually drawing, him, drawing attention to the fact that he is that Lord. Not the second Lord, in the sense, primarily the first Lord, Yahweh. In, in my research for this sermon, um, I looked at what the commentators were saying, and um, they were saying that um, some of the things that come out in this psalm actually are in sync with what the New Testament teaches about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And I want to look into a couple of upside-down uh, kingdom of God things now. And those two things are going to be donkeys and babies. Donkeys and babies. We had a donkey at our Christmas service, but donkeys um, are very high earners. Uh, they charge $250. And uh, I wasn't prepared to pay the donkey again. Um, what is the significance of the donkey in this story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem? Well, let's have a look at Zechariah's prophet, a prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9. It says here, Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Other versions of the Bible use the word humble instead of gentle, as in the NIV. So what is the symbolism of the donkey? Well, um, we often think that kings should ride on magnificent proud, beautiful stallions, maybe Clydesdales or Shires with the big woolly feet. Um, that would be very appropriate for a king, you would think. Uh, maybe the king should come with four of those horses pulling his chariot. Would not be very appropriate. Now, the queen, she has a beautiful uh, carriage or two um, with beautiful horses, and that we would consider as noble and um, regal. But Jesus didn't come in one of those Children, this reminds me, or maybe big children, this reminds me of a, um, another equine uh, called um, Donkey from the story of Shrek. <laughs> and he aspired to being a, what did he want to be? Noble steed. That's right, he really wanted to be a noble steed. And in fact, in one of the Shrek stories, he ended up becoming a noble steed. But he didn't consider himself a noble steed as long as he was a donkey. And um, 
we wonder then, why did Jesus come in on this ignoble steed um, into Jerusalem? Well, um, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they were going to war, and donkeys or mules if they were coming in peace. Has, have any of you ever ridden a donkey? Let's see if not too many, not too many. Well, <clears throat> I did very, very early on in Ireland in the summertime. Um, we have donkeys on the beach, and the people uh, ride you up and down in the donkeys, and I always wanted to ride the donkey as a little child. But as you get older, donkeys are quite small. So for somebody like Matthew Wickstead, his feet would be trailing the ground, <laughs> and it'd be a bit like him riding a dog. And um, there's not really a lot of um, speed with a donkey. Um, he's not a noble steed, and he's not got a lot of speed. Does anyone want to make a poem from that? Um, but in the Old Testament, David said about his son Solomon, take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, not on my stallion, but on my mule and take him down to Gihon. A mule is a cross between a male donkey and a female horse and uh, also not a noble steed. Um, but when uh, a city would see the king coming along, bobbing along, you know, fast like that, on the back of a donkey, they would know that they weren't in trouble. They would know that the king was coming in peace with a, a very pleasing agenda. And this is why Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, because he was coming in peace and in grace with good news for that city, uh, if only they knew it. Those who laid down their cloaks and who waved palm branches, they may have thought he was coming to be their king, or they may have indeed understood what he was going to do. But that didn't matter. Seven days later, the tide had turned and the majority of people had gone against him. But when Jesus went through those gates on the back of the donkey, he was fulfilling what the angels said about him in Matthew chapter 2, 14, when they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And Jesus was carrying that on right up to the gates of Jerusalem, through the gates and into the city. And since Jesus came with such obvious peace, because in the Jewish mind they would, they would have picked that up, he's coming in peace, it's all the more horrible to see what they did to him a few days later. Some of us who are older, we would have been raised on a wonderful hymn that would always be sung on Palm Sunday. Um, I remember singing it even recently back in Ireland. It's uh, by Henry Millman, and it's called Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. I'll read a few of the verses. Verse 1, Ride on, ride on in majesty. Hark all the tribes, Hosanna cry. O Savior meek, pursue thy road with palms and scattered garments strode. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, thy triumphs now begin. O death, O captive death and conquered sin. And verse 5 is amazing. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek, meek head to mortal pain, then take, O Christ, thy power and reign. I love that last line especially. Then take, O Christ, thy power and reign. And that's what Jesus did when he rose again on the third day. There's a striking phrase regarding the donkey here in Luke 19, 34, which we haven't read. It's just a few words, and it says here, the Lord has need of him. So 
Um, the disciples said, Lord, what if they say, why are you taking the donkey? Jesus said, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And this is an amazing thing because one of the attributes of God is that he doesn't need anybody or anything. God doesn't need us in the truest sense of the word. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our worship. He can live very well without it. Thank you very much. And he has done for most of eternity. But Jesus, the God-man, in becoming a man, became someone who needed things. That's part of being human. And he needed this donkey. Imagine needing a donkey. You know, a lowly creature like a donkey. They even have a bit of a sad face, don't they? Donkeys. Have you ever really seen a happy donkey apart from Shrek's friend? The animators can make him look happy, but donkeys rarely look happy. Jesus needed one particular donkey. And this is surely a choice on Jesus' part to need something. And just as he needed a donkey, in a very real sense, he needs us to carry on his work here in the world. He has chosen you for a certain task. What is that task? Maybe you can look at your giftings. Maybe you can look at your calling, your passions, and see if you can't begin to understand what God is calling you to. God never called any of us to come on Sundays and sit and warm up a seat. Never called anybody to that. I want to um, just say right now that I've rarely been involved with a church as, that has got as many active members as Eltham. It's amazing. A very high percentage of people in Eltham do something in the ministry of the church, which is fantastic. Some people uh, had this statistic that goes around that says only 20% of those who go to church actually do anything to help the church. It's not, this, it's not like that here in Eltham, which I praise God for. Uh, and any church that has that statistic is doomed to decline, I reckon. But may the Lord um, do such a work in Eltham that 100% of those who attend the church are active in the service of the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? God, or the Lord Jesus, in a, in a, in a way which I wouldn't want to say absolute because he doesn't need anything, but on the other hand, he needs you to do what he called you to do. And we actually need to do what he calls us to do because that's our destiny and uh, that's our reason for being. Now, um, just to bring things into balance, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus Christ is the one who's riding the white horse and his mission there is very, very different from his mission on Palm Sunday. Let's read what verse 11 of chapter 19 in Revelation says. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. So here we have the king on the war horse now. The judge, the warrior. And it struck me that where we are right now in time, is between the donkey and the war horse. We are living in the age of grace. The king has, has come on a, whore, on a donkey with grace and salvation. 
The word Hosanna that they sang, the children sang, means he saves. Hosanna to the king, or the, the son of David. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, the Christ that you will meet is the Christ on the white horse who judges and makes war. But that doesn't have to be the case. You can still meet the Christ on the donkey, the one who comes in grace and in peace and salvation. What will it be for you? Have you met him yet? Have you given your life to him? If you would like to talk to us, we'll be here afterwards. I'm very happy to talk to you about your soul and salvation. So we've been talking about the upside-down kingdom of God and how God does things very differently and almost foolishly to the human mind. Corinthians, Paul tells us in Corinthians that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we have seen that even in, in some of the things that have happened in the world scene over the last year or so in politics. But there's another f foolish thing that the Lord has done in this passage, and it has to do with children. Children are very important people in the kingdom of God. In fact, they are the most important people in the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. I'll read it to you. Matthew 18, verse 3. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Upside down, kingdom of heaven. Once again, Jesus is demonstrating this. Here in Matthew 21, verse 16, he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, which we already read. I'll read it again. Jesus said, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. God has enemies. And uh, some people have made themselves enemies of God. But people are not God's primary enemies. There are evil entities out there, Satan being the main one, who are hell-bent on being the enemies of God. But God has a massive secret weapon to silence them. What is it? It's the praise of children. I'll pick up on that later. Never, never, ever underestimate the faith of a child. I would like to relate a story to you about a child and her mother who attend this church. They're happy for me to share this story, but just to protect their privacy, I'll leave their names unmentioned. A couple of weeks ago, the mother was suffering from terrible back pain, and uh, she'd been three days on pain relief, and it wasn't getting any better. And her little daughter noticed this, and she said to her, Mom, come outside, and from here on I'll use her mother's words. I was walking to the door on the deck to go outside, and I said, why are we going outside? What do you need? She said, stand next to me, because I want to pray for your back. This little child is five or six. I said, okay, that's great. She placed her hands on my back and said, dear God, please can you fix mommy's back 
so it does not hurt anymore, and she can walk properly. Thank you. Amen. Then she said to me, there you go, Mom. God will make you better. And he did. Amazingly, um, her back was healed there and then. Isn't that amazing? It's wonderful. All glory to Jesus. But it was a little girl who had the faith to pray for her mom. I've heard of other stories like that, very close to me. And um, we should never, ever, ever underestimate the faith of a child. Another um, way of seeing this happening in our church recently is just that I took notice more of it because one Sunday there were four children up here in the praise band playing instruments and singing. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, isn't it wonderful that they're allowed to do that? Isn't it wonderful that they're encouraged to do that? Because from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. One of the most powerful things we could do is to allow children to do that. One of the stupidest things we could do is to say, come down from there. Shh. You're spoiling the professionalism of the team. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Who cares about professionalism when we, if we have to lose power in the process? Isn't that right? I'd rather have the kids up there than professionalism. If it meant that the, there was going to be power in our worship, there's going to be things done in the heavenlies, there were going to be foes and, what's the other word? Avengers who would be silenced. Want to silence the devil? Get the kids. I heard of a church, actually it's um, Bayside Church down there with Tom Buckingham. They, Rob Buckingham, sorry. Thanks, Andrea. Um, they had a children's camp, and after the camp, it was Sunday afternoon. The kids went straight to church afterwards. It uh, must have been evening service or something like that. And they got the kids up at the front to pray um, for people after the service. And uh, is that right or wrong? Well, according to what we're reading, according to what we're experiencing, it's right. So children, if adults come and ask you to pray tonight, don't be afraid, just do it. God defeats his foes by human weakness including the weakness of children. Us adults, we adults, we have plenty of uh, weakness too. But moving on from the upside down things to something that's uh, very apparent here in the story, Jesus moves on into the city. Verse 12, it says, He entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So Jesus has um, almost changed the stance from one of gentleness, and yet still humble. Can you imagine the authority that this one man must have had or must have been just flowing out of him to be able to go into that crowded area and single-handedly drive out everyone who was extorting the people, everyone who was selling animals and changing money and all that kind of thing. Can you imagine the power and the authority that he had to do that? Um, I'd love to see that in real life. He had authority. Only one with authority could do that. And not only has the authority to upset the money changers, he has authority to do whatever he likes in this entire universe. Furthermore, he heals all the blind and the lame. Um, just sealing and 
just proclaiming to the people in a very open way that he is indeed the anointed one, the king, the Messiah. Verse 14 says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Which was amazing. Then in this story, and this is to finish with, we see the deity of Christ. Now going back to that little phrase, the Lord has need of it, in reference to the donkey. There's something um, that could be hidden there to us, but it wasn't hidden to the owners of the donkey. When the disciples said, the Lord has need of it, they understood Jehovah. But Jesus understood himself. You see, um, the Old Testament was translated into Greek um, many hundreds of years ago before Christ. And the word that they used um, to, dis- to uh, translate Jehovah at times was the word Lord or Kyrios. And that is the word that Jesus adopted for himself in the New Testament. Therefore showing that he understood himself to be God himself. And in this story of the declaration of his kingship, his future kingship, he was also in a way declaring that he was the God-man. Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of all creation. And this is the one that we must worship. And it's really, really good today that we are here together, not just as a bunch of adults or even young people, but with children as well, to worship him together. Because our king is the one who comes to us, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's um, bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to just take these words and and, uh, seal them in our hearts and cause whichever ones he wants to be transformative in our lives, to take action. May we have a week of meditation upon the king, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all the universe, all the cosmos, all creation. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, the one who came in riding on a donkey, we're very much aware that you will come again and you'll be riding a white horse. You'll be coming to judge. You'll be coming to make war on the enemies of God. And we know and are secure in this knowledge that they are defeated. You will make an end of them and that your reign will be eternal throughout the entire universe. And we want to be on your side, Lord. We want to uh, be allied with you completely every hour of every day. We do not want to compromise with the world. Forgive us where we do compromise, Lord, where we take little diversions and tangents into the sinful side of the world. May we not do that. May we resist. May we set our faces resolutely to do what you have asked us to do this week. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.